Okay. Why don't you turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. It's on page 1413. Um, we're working our way through and we're, um, we're, we're at verse 11. Uh, now, before we jump into verse 11 there again, let me um, just remind us about the setting and what's happening here in this letter between uh, that the Apostle Paul has written to Timothy, who's in this city of Ephesus looking over uh, or taking care of the church there or overseeing the church there at, in the city of Ephesus. We, we remember that, that there were people there in that church among those believers that were teaching the wrong thing. Now that you got to chapter 6, turn back to chapter 1. Ha, fooled you. Um, chapter 1, verse 3. It was about this time last year that we were in chapter 1, verse 3. So I figure we're, it's okay to, to read this again. Let's, I, I do this just to remind ourselves of, um, of why part of the reason why Paul was writing this letter. He says, As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. See, you see there's certain people... They're teaching the wrong thing. And that's why Paul left Timothy there, was to set that situation straight. Then verse 4. Nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation, rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. In other words, Paul's reminding Timothy that our instruction is meant to bring about a change in the life and the change in the life that can be characterized. If, if you had to pick one word to characterize the change that's supposed to take place, it's that word love. Verse 6, for some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. So now, you see, what's happened here is that, that uh, this is a situation that exists in Ephesus. Paul left Timothy there to try to deal with it. And he's saying that there are, and we realize that there are teachers of false doctrine who are in, in influencing that church. And therefore, the, the teachers themselves are false. What they believe in, what they're trying to convey to other people isn't true. It doesn't line up with the scriptures. But they themselves aren't true. There's something wrong with them. Their teaching is not the real doctrine. And they themselves are not the real thing. They're, they're not actually embodying what real Christianity is, what fo- a follower of Christ really is. They're not the real thing, and their teaching isn't the real thing. And so one of the questions we get is, well, what is the real thing? What does that look like? The actual truth embodied in a particular person, that's the real thing. And what is that? And as we have gone through this book, that's been partly what Paul has been doing, is trying to clarify that. And especially as he gets now towards the very end of the book, in chapter 6, where we are in, in this whole section here of chapter 6. In chapter 6, he's been highlighting the false. If you look, now we're back at chapter 6, but you look at verse 3 there. 
If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness. See, he's, he's concerned there that, that there are people who are, are not sticking with the truth. And then in verses 4 all the way through 10, which is where we've been recently, he's been uh, highlighting the issue of real godliness. And it's, it's uh, led him to speak about contentment and then the opposite of contentment, which is a desire to get rich and a love of money. And throughout all this, um, there is this contrast going on between the real thing and the not so real thing. And then in beginning in verse 11, which is where we are today, he gives a charge to Timothy. And he's basically saying to Timothy, brother, you've got to be the real thing. You yourself have got to be the real thing. You notice there in verse 11, he calls him, you man of God. He says, flee from these things, you man of God. You're the real thing, Timothy. And you've got to keep being the real thing, in essence, is what Paul is saying. I'll read verses 11 and 12 to you. It says, but flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. It's interesting that in this passage, he gives basically three commands. There's four commands, but two of them stick together. So I'm saying three. It's, he gives three commands, and those three commands that he gives to, to Timothy illustrate uh, three different aspects of real Christianity. What does is, what is a real follower of Christ look like? There's three aspects of that, and, and those three commands touch on those individual aspects. What a person who possesses real Christianity should be concerned with is what Paul is talking to Timothy about. And so let's look at those three areas and these three commands. The real thing, the real thing, which I trust you want to be. Amen. You want to be the real thing. We don't want to be off on the wrong track. The real thing is concerned, number one, with right and wrong, good and bad. Right and wrong, good and bad. Look again at verse 11. He says, but flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. There's a lot, there's a lot in this verse. It's going to take a little while to comment about it all. Uh, notice first that there's two commands. One's a negative and one's a positive, but they go, they go together. He says he starts off flee. So he's saying run away from certain things. And then a little bit later, he says and pursue. So run towards other things, flee certain things, run after other things. And this in itself, even before we've looked at what exactly it is you're supposed to run from and run to just the fact that it's written that way instructs us about the way God works in our lives. This is the way that God works in our lives. God doesn't just tell us to go do something without instructing us on what we've got to leave behind. But on the other hand, God doesn't just tell us to to get rid of certain things without telling us what to pursue. 
Over and over again in the scriptures, it's like this. Don't do this, but do this. Don't do this, but do this. People who present Christianity as a list of things not to do are only half right. And therefore, they're, they're all wrong. Uh, Ephesians in chapter 4 is a famous passage, which is the put off and put on passage where it speaks about our, our character and our virtues as clothes almost. And it says, put, put certain things off and put certain other things on. Throughout scripture, it's this way. And uh, that's the way God deals with us. Now, if you look again at the verse where it says flee, what are we supposed to flee? Flee what? Well, flee what he's just been talking about. Um, All that's been talked about in verse 6 through 10 about um, the absence of contentment, especially beginning in verse 9 that we looked at last week. Those who want to get rich, that's the actual desire. That's That's the way they operate. Then the temptations and the snares and the foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. That's verse 9. Verse 10, the love of money, it's the root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But flee from these things, you man of God. All of that, run away from it. Don't just not do it, run from it. And then he says, pursue, but pursue. And then he lists six virtues. And it's very interesting to see um, the virtues that he mentions. But before we look at each one of these virtues, I, I think that we need to realize what is happening here. God is making demands upon our lives. I mean, in the very context here, God is making a demand upon Timothy's life and upon every Christian who heard this letter read their life. And so, therefore, even for ourselves, God's making a demand upon our life. He's going to name six qualities of life, and he's saying that's the way our lives should be. He, God, retains the right to demand of us certain certain changes in our lives amen there wasn't a real round and hearty amen but it's very true um god accepts you the way you are but he loves you too much to leave you the way you are amen you don't have to clean up your act in order to be accepted by god God provides for you to be accepted to himself through Jesus Christ. That's what the cross is all about. Jesus went to the cross and he is your substitute uh, and perfect substitute. He stood in for you and all of your guilt and all your shortcomings. God took it all away in Christ. So in Christ, you're accepted and he takes you just the way you are. Takes you to himself and he says, now, now let's start cleaning you up. He doesn't, he, he doesn't leave you where you're at and this is all consistent with grace some people resist the idea that god is laying obligations on me and saying that you've got to change some people resist that because they think that somehow it doesn't fit with grace of being accepted by god not on the basis of the deeds which we have done but on the basis of his mercy but god apparently doesn't seem see any contradiction He saves us by grace 
and then demands that we change. When you turn back to chapter 3, verse 16, and I'm doing this on purpose. I know we've been studying this book for over a year. So I'm I'm using some time to go back and remind us about what we've seen already. What's the essence of godliness? Is the essence of godliness working hard to change ourselves? Look at verse 16, chapter 3. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. Here comes. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Where are you in that? You see, the essence of godliness, he's saying great is the mystery of godliness. The essence of it, the focus of it is Jesus Christ. Amen? It's not you. It's not me. It's Christ. That's what it all, it all boils down to Christ. And so, so we are reconciled to God because of Christ, not because of ourselves. And yet once reconciled, he changes us. He begins to change us over and over again. And so a person who is reconciled to God begins to change in their attitudes and in their actions. And one who says they're reconciled to God but offers no evidence of change, there's a big question mark written over their life. I believe God writes the question mark there. Well, are you or Aren't you? God knows, but we ourselves might not. A change occurs in us. And now, Paul, back to chapter 6, verse 11, he, he's going to show us and mention six virtues. It's interesting. Paul does this often. In many of his letters, he'll write and he'll list virtues. And it's, it's interesting to, to realize that none of his lists, none of them are the same. They, they, so not, I don't think any of them are meant to be the list. He, they're representative of different aspects of our lives. But here he has six. He says, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Now, as I comment on these six, just our prayers that, that the Holy Spirit will do just a little checkup on you and see how you're doing. Let, let the Spirit of God probe in your own heart and challenge you where you need to grow. And then respond as a song we sang this morning. Bow your knee and let God lead you in your life. The first word is righteousness. It's almost uh, one New Testament scholar says, as used of humans in the New Testament, it refers almost always to conduct that is in accord with God's will and pleasing to him. Righteousness means doing the right thing. <laughs> uh, we don't have to get too much more complicated than that. Instead of doing the wrong thing, we, we do the right thing. Godliness. Godliness um, is your manner of life. We've spent a long time thinking about this. It's your manner of life which shows that God is in all of your life and that all your life is lived with a desire to honor him. Godliness is not church ceremonies or religious acts. Godliness is, a, is your life 
permeated with Christ and with a desire to honor him. It's all you do. It's the way you do all you do. Godliness. No, no room for compartmentalizing Christianity. Godliness doesn't let you have a religious part of your life and then other parts of your life. It, that doesn't work. Godliness is everything. Your, your life is oriented towards Christ, towards God through Christ. And you walk that way whether you're at work or at church. See, it's, there's no difference. Godliness. Faith. Faith is the next one. It's crucial to realize that this word does not, is, is not merely referring to something in your head that you agree with certain facts. But faith means trust in the Bible. I understand who Christ is, but at that point I haven't believed, I haven't, I haven't put faith in him. But when I then trust him personally, now there's faith. Faith is my trusting in something based upon what I understand about that something. There's a great, there's a great confusion in certain parts of American Christianity that, that thinks that belief is only agreeing with facts. I, I, I agree. Jesus was God. I agree. He died for my sins. You can go to hell that way. Do you understand that? I agree with that. But have you trusted him? That's belief. That's faith. Faith, it says. And then that faith that, that brings us into a relationship with Christ, it, 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 it ushers us into Christ. We have to live that way continually. I continually trust him. I don't just, I don't just read the Bible and say, yeah, that's good. But then I have to, I have to believe it. I have to trust it. And, and I make decisions based on that. I trust him. Faith. Faith. Pursue it. Next word is love. Love. Probably many people who don't know Greek know that there's different words for, in the Greek for the, for the word love in English. And there's that one called agape love that we've heard so much about. But it's a, it's a, it's a love that loves not because the love has been earned. It's an un, unearned love. And so we, we love people not because they're lovely. But because we love, we love them because God loved us when we were unlovely and unlovable. And so we now he's made us his and we turn and try to love other people the same way he has loved us. We need to pursue that, pursue that in our life. It might be just an outside chance that maybe one person in this room, just one maybe, has somebody in their life that's unlovable. Yeah, okay. I thought so. Well, pursue this. Pursue love. That kind of love. And then the next word is fascinating. Perseverance. Isn't it interesting that Paul is going to make this list, just a representative list. He's just going to pick a few virtues to mention that we need to pursue. And he, and he puts this one in there. Perseverance. Perseverance. It, this in the original, in the Greek, is a compound word between two words. Um, it, it has the word uh, to continue, and it has the word under. 
And so it, it means to continue under. And the under part is usually, it means it's, it's negative. There's a difficulty in the life. There's something that's, that's either it's persecution, it's overt, or it's just a difficulty in our circumstances. But there's something under which we do not like, but we're called on God to continue, keep going under this, persevere, persevere. We need that. We need that. And we need to pursue perseverance. When the difficulties come and we feel like quitting, we have to keep going. And we keep going by, by receiving from God the help that he offers. And then last, the last one he mentions is gentleness. How interesting. Gentleness. Gentleness. I'm not sure that would have made it on my list. List six, six qualities, six characteristics of a good Christian, six virtues that you should pursue. Would I have thought of gentleness? Would you have thought of gentleness? But God wrote in gentleness to be gentle with people. Our culture tends to be a little rough with people. Have you noticed? I have. Well, why don't we be different in the midst of this culture? And one, one Bible scholar has pointed out that in the immediate context here, after just having talked about the love of money and the desire to get rich and all that that produces in a life, he then mentions six characteristics. And, and this, this one that was writing mentioned, have you not- can you notice how if you have a love of money, you're not going to do well on any of these six? One who wants the money isn't going to be doing the right things. He won't be righteous. He's certainly not expressing godliness, a manner of life permeated with a desire to glorify God. He's not trusting in the right thing. He's going to wind up not loving people because he's loving the money. He's not going to persevere in, in following God when following God means maybe giving up something on the, in terms of money. And he's certainly not going to be gentle with everyone in his path. All of these six are contradictory to the love of money. But it's not only the love of money. There's much that they contradict. And so God says, pursue these things. Pursue these things. You see, the real thing, Paul is saying now to Timothy, the real thing, Timothy, I want you, you've got to be the real thing. The genuine, what do they say? The real McCoy. Right. You've got to be that. And the one who's the real thing is concerned with right and wrong and good and bad. The one, the fake isn't necessarily. The fake will hedge on that, but the real thing won't. Now, secondly, um, the real thing is concerned with, and I'm going to say it in one word, truth. Look at, look at verse 12, the beginning of verse 12. He says, fight the good fight of faith. Fight the good fight of faith. Now, this is interesting because um, uh, it was a little hard to translate from Greek into English. And I don't usually pronounce Greek words, but when, when I do pronounce them, I do it because they sound like an English word and it might help us understand it. But um, the word for fight there is agonizomai. Now, if you take the omai off the end, it's agonizo. What's that sound like? Agony. That's where we get our English word agony. So he's really saying 
agonize the good agony of faith. Boy, that sounds like fun, doesn't it? Some try to translate it, contest the good contest, struggle in the good struggle. The word was used in two contexts. It was used in the athletic realm and it was used in the military realm where people were, were striving. Um, there was a, you see in there a core meaning that you're, a person is straining, they're stretching their own ability. There's an opponent that they're, they're, they're striving against and they're seeking, they're doing all this for a purpose. They want to win either an athletic contest or in battle. And so that's why eventually the translators come up with, well, fight works. Fight. Fight the good fight of faith. We've got to, we've got to exercise um, energy striving for faith. But now the question comes, what does it mean by faith there? Does this mean faith like we just saw it in the verse before about our individual trust, trusting in Christ? Actually, I believe it, it means that something different. Many times in the Bible, faith is what you're putting your faith in. And actually, in some English translations, you'll see the word the there, and that's in the Greek. So I think it should, it should say, fight the good fight of the faith, of the faith. He's talking about the faith. This is the, the, the truth. It's the doctrine. It's the truth that you are supposed to believe, know and believe. Turn back to 1 Timothy chapter 2. I'm going to show you something that happens throughout the book. <clears throat> you know, last week I ended early. I, I'm going to try to make up for it today. Um, chapter 2, verse 3. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Do you see that? He says there's there's a body of truth that people need to see it and understand it and believe it. This this goes on. Look at chapter three, verse 15. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. This is, this is running through his book. The truth. And you get to chapter 4, verse 3. I'm coming in the middle of a long sentence here. He's talking about the bad guys again. He says, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods, which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. There's this thread running through. Paul is talking about the truth. And then sometimes he calls it the doctrine or the teaching. Look in verse 6 right here. So this is chapter 4, verse 6. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith, There it is. And of the sound doctrine, which you have been following. He's got them both there. There's the faith. There's the words of the doctrine or the teaching. And then you go to chapter 6. We're working our way back to the same chapter. Verse 1. You remember back when we talked about the issue of slavery. But verse 1, it says, All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, Why? So that the name of our God and our doctrine, that's that 
truth, the, the faith, will not be spoken against. It's amazing. So now it gets down. Um, again, we looked at this last week, verse 10. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith. And now he, we, he gets to verse 12, and he's saying, fight the good fight of the faith. You need to, you, we need to protect the faith. We need to exert ourselves to understand the truth and to reject the false. If you're a church leader here this morning, there's a special application of this to you because we as church leaders bear a responsibility to look out for the whole flock. And so we need to fight the fight of the faith. We need to recognize when there's false doctrine coming our way and we need to reject it and keep teaching the truth. Amen. And by the way, with all the all the uh, people starting to get a little hyper about end time stuff, you know, all the Mayan calendar and what's his name saying that in May Christ is coming back. He's a loony, by the way. Okay, when, uh, there's going to be a lot going on this year in people's minds about end time stuff. So we have to stay true to the truth and not get 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 upset. And as and as leaders, we bear responsibility to a little more responsibility to be on the alert for that to fight. The fight of the faith. But it also applies to every one of you, whether you're a leader or not. You yourself, right? You need to exert energy to know the truth and and to know it and to recognize and reject falseness. Don't be surprised. This this tells me that none of us should be surprised um, when it takes some effort, right? It actually takes effort. To know the truth. He's using this word, agonize. Be strenuous in this. Uh, a couple Sundays ago, we handed out um, family worship plans. And um, that's great. It doesn't take much effort to receive the family worship plan, right? But it takes effort to do it. Amen? That's all right. As you do that, you're, you're agonizing the good agony. You're, you're, you're striving to know the truth. And to recognize error. Also, um, I think when I think about this, this, this little phrase here, fight the good fight of the faith, I think it reminds us that we should not be naive. We need to evaluate what we hear. You need to evaluate what I say. We all need to evaluate everything that we hear. And just because it's on a Christian television network doesn't mean it's right. And you, we need we need to, to to evaluate. We need to fight the good fight of the faith. And also, I believe this says to us that we must not minimize the importance of correctly understanding the Bible. Amen. Some people in our day are just saying, "Ah, don't get so uptight about doctrine. Just relax." I mean, we all love Jesus, right? No, I don't know. I don't know if you love Jesus or not. But we, I know that the scripture says we've got to, to agonize over making sure that we've got the truth and that we're understanding it actually the way it was meant. So don't give in, I would say, to, to the people and the kind of, there's a current of feeling these days that uh, just to downplay a study of doctrine and no, 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 no. Fight 
the good fight of the faith. I remember when, we, when I worked as a uh, deckhand on a workboat down in the Gulf of Mexico. It was interesting. This is back before all these satellite GPSs and stuff. I mean, you know, we used sailboats and oars. No, just joking. We had engines and everything. But this whole satellite navigation system stuff wasn't, wasn't there yet. But in our, in our boat, it was a big, it was a big boat, 135 feet long, and we carried a lot of equipment and everything out to the oil rigs and back. But, um, we had two navigation systems in there. We had a backup navigation. We had two different, completely different ways of navigating, as well as the captain knew how to get around if he had to with the stars. So we had backup navigation systems. We didn't have backup systems for a lot of other things. As a matter of fact, if our refrigerator broke, we'd be eating a lot of cereal or something. I don't know what. I mean, we didn't have a backup food system. We didn't have a backup this or that system. But the navigation system, we could navigate in completely different independent ways and that's because if we didn't you know how many of you have had the pleasure of just getting out on a boat into the ocean when you can't see any land anymore yeah once you're out there it's all the same it doesn't matter which way you look it's just water so how in the world you're loaded up on shore with all this heavy equipment it has to go in an oil rig and they say it's, you know, it's, on, it's out there and they give you the coordinates. How do you get there? There's no street signs. You can't just, you know, stay on the right side of the dotted line and you'll get there. No, there's no dotted line. If you can't navigate to get there, you won't get there. And it doesn't matter. You can do everything else right. But if you don't arrive, you fail. And my friends, listen, he's saying here in this passage, the truth, the truth, the teaching, the faith. If you miss that, you've missed it. You've you've failed. So you've got to agonize and get it right. And as you get it right, you get there. It's the navigation system. Well, thirdly, thirdly. The real thing we've said, well, what have we said? The real thing is concerned with right and wrong, good and bad. The real thing is concerned with truth. But thirdly, the real thing is concerned with experiencing the person of Christ. Look at the second part of verse 12. He says, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Take hold of this, he's saying. Take hold of eternal life. Grab it. Seize it. Hold on to it. That's interesting. Paul's telling Timothy, grab on to this. Grab on to what? Eternal life. Well, does this mean that he doesn't have eternal life? No. We know that he, he has it because look what it says. It says, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And if we had the time, we could look in the scripture that the calling of God, the way that word calling is used is that God is, God is causing the people that he's calling to come to faith. So God has called Timothy. He's already called him. He's drawn him in John chapter six. He uses the word draw. He's drawn Timothy to himself. He has eternal life. And then it says, 
You see how it keeps going. And you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Probably referring to his baptism is probably what's happened here. Is that he, it was the practice as much as we can tell that they would, they would give their testimony of their faith in Christ. They confess their faith in Christ before those who are watching them be baptized. Just as we try to do here. And so he said, you, you made a profession of faith. God's called you to faith. So he's not saying that he doesn't have eternal life, but he's saying, hold on to it, seize it, make sure you experience what you already have. In Matthew fourteen thirty one, it's interesting. There's a, uh, this word is used about take hold of. It's where Peter got out on the water. Remember, he was out walking uh, and uh, without a life vest. And he's out there in the storm, walking on the water. And then he gets afraid and starts to fall. And then it says in 1431, immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, you, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? That took hold of him. That's the same word being used here in 1 Timothy 6. And Paul wrote about this idea in another place. It was in Philippians 3.12. Let me read it to you. He says, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. I love that. Christ has come into my life and he's laid hold of me. And now the scripture is saying, you lay hold back on him. Amen? Sometimes people have religion, but they don't have Christ. Sometimes people have church membership, but they don't have Christ. Sometimes people have Christian practices. They read their Bible, they pray, they do this and they do that, but they don't have Christ. And Paul is saying to Timothy, you want to be the real thing? Oh, man of God, lay hold of Christ. You know, in John 17, 3, it says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is knowing God through Jesus Christ. Knowing Christ. And my question to you this morning is, do you have him? Do you have him or do you just have religious practices? There are many church people who go to hell, who miss it. They miss it all. It's because they've they've got religion, but they don't have Christ. But this passage is saying to us, don't be that way. It's God laying hold of you. Lay hold of him. Grab him. Make sure that you got the person of Jesus Christ. That you're experiencing Jesus Christ. You know, sometimes our love grows cold and our hearts get distracted. We have Christ. We know it. We know him, but we get distracted. We get um, busy. We get cold. Are you drifting from your first love with him? You can change that drift today. You can just look up to him as, as uh, Peter did. As he was sinking in the waves and Jesus grabbed him and he grabbed him back. 
Just grab Christ afresh this morning if your love is growing cold and just say, no, Lord God, I don't want to be satisfied just with being churched. I want to I want to know you. I want to experience you, Lord Jesus. One Bible scholar in commenting on this verse said, just so, although Timothy had already received eternal life, Paul urged him to seize it, grasp it, lay hold of it, make it completely his own, enjoy it and live it to the full. That's what we're being told here. Now, it's very interesting when you think about these three different commands that Paul gave to Timothy. He's talking about fleeing the wrong and pursuing the right. So he's looking at the right and wrong, good and bad. He's talking about uh, the truth and actually getting air out and and focusing and knowing the truth and focusing on it. And then he's focusing here on but laying hold of and actually experiencing the person of Christ. Those three areas of Christianity, of, of real Christianity, are it's ethics, doctrine, and experience. I don't know if you've thought of it that way. Ethics, right and wrong, good and bad. Doctrine, actually knowing the truth. And experience, actually experientially knowing Jesus Christ. Those three are all a part of the real thing. And, and many times people live with one or two of them, but it's never actually connected that all three go together. John Stott wrote this, Some fight for the truth, but they neglect holiness. Others pursue holiness, but have no comparable concern for truth. And yet others disregard both doctrine and ethics in their search for religious experience. The man or woman of God combines all three. There's much, you know, in our day about people who are spiritual. That's the word these days. Now, it's, often it's not religious as much as spiritual. You've heard it. People say, well, she's a spiritual person. He's a spiritual person. But there's, there's no agonizing over the truth. So it's a spirituality that's based on falseness. It's, it could be real spirituality, but it's error. It's, it's demonic. It's wrong. We, we have to put all of this together. The experience of Christ, the, the, the knowledge and the understanding of the truth, and it's affecting our ethics, the way we live. That is the real thing. And that is what you and I want to be. Amen? Amen. Let's, um, let's stand to close. Thank you, O oh Lord, for... Your grace in our lives. Thank you for what you've done in us already. Oh, Father, we all want to be the real thing. Give us each, I pray, oh, Father, a real concern to pursue allowing you to change our lives so that that um, righteousness and godliness, faith and love, perseverance, um, gentleness that all of that would be exhibited in each of our lives and lord may we exert ourselves to know the truth and father may we not do any of that or all of it just doing the motions but may we know you personally 
through it all. Revive our hearts, O Lord, if we have grown cold, that we might walk with you and know you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Lord bless.